Well, welcome back to a special episode of Policing Matters. I'm Jim Dudley. Well, today we will be hearing from great guests that I interviewed at the FBI National Academy Conference in Orlando in July of this year. And uh, you'll be happy to hear from Bill Bratton, former chief of LAPD, former NYPD police commissioner, and former Boston police officer about the challenges of policing today. You'll hear a little bit about his new book. And uh, he's still relevant today. He still talks about policing initiatives and earning the public's trust and some things that we need to do to uh, regroup and take a new uh, advance in 2022. We'll also hear from Ben Salem Township Police Department's Director of Public Safety, Fred Heron, about the agency's use of Thermo Fisher's rapid DNA to solve property crimes within an hour. So he talks about how they use it to solve crimes using DNA samples that come back while the suspect's still in custody. Doug Monda is the founder of Survive First about the barriers that prevent public safety personnel from getting help for mental health issues. And it was really great talking to Doug. He's got a great story to tell uh, an almost tragic one. Uh, he is a former police officer, former SWAT officer, triathlete, um, and he had some some difficult uh, times that uh, that, as I say, almost ended tragically. But uh, there's a good outcome, and Survive First helps officers who are struggling and might need some support. So good ones to listen to. I hope you're all doing well. Um, I hope you're surviving this winter and uh, listen soon for our year end wrap up where I speak with Dr. Janae Gasparini. I hope you enjoy that as well. Stay safe. Watch your six. See you in 2022. Take good care. I'm Jim Dudley. And welcome back to Policing Matters. And today I'm at the FBI National Academy Conference with the old guy. The old guy, Chief Bill Bratton, uh, much respect. Thank you for what you do for policing. Uh, former Boston police officer, commissioner, chief of LAPD, NYPD, innovator, CompStat, crime mapping. Uh, I teach at San Francisco State University, and we talk about you often. Thanks for what you In do. In the nicest way possible, I hope. The <laughs> nicest way. And, uh, and maybe do a little deflection of the criticism of those systems. So thanks for being here at the conference. Uh, inspirational. You're, you're still pushing forward. You've got a new book out, The Profession. Um, and, and today you're talking about technology, communication. What, what do you see for the immediate future and then further down the road for policing with the defunding social experiment and all the criticism of police today? There's no denying that policing at the moment is in a very stressful position. And it's going to take us a while to win back some of the trust that we've lost, expand on the trust that we still have with many communities. But there's no denying that this is, uh, in my 50-year experience, probably one of the most problematic times for police. That uh, uh, The issue of trust is really, first and foremost, something we have to deal with. Uh, I'm confident that we'll regain it, but we're going to have to work very hard to do that. For sure. And, and so in recruiting... What's the what's the message to today's leaders in law enforcement? How do we increase morale and 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 get it to be a, a better um, 
uh, more effective way to, to recruit people? That's going to be the challenge that uh, at the conference uh, that we're both attending, I raise that issue for those still in the profession, be proud of the profession, but part of the uh, 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 clarion call I made to them was to encourage others to come into the profession. Uh, Chuck Ramsey, who was also here with us today, former commissioner of Philadelphia in Washington, D.C., uh, talked about we need young people who come into the profession for all the right reasons, to help people and to understand that uh, it is a very special position of trust, the idea that they have the authority to take a life, to take somebody into custody. Uh, we need talented people, educated people, dedicated people. All right, and so I don't want to take too much of your time. You said some really good things about body cameras and transparency with the community. How effective or how important are body cameras? Body cameras, I think, are uh, absolutely essential in the 21st century in that uh, most offices don't understand fully how essential they are and will be because they tell a story from beginning to end and so we're not getting snippets from somebody's smartphone. So if the offices use them appropriately, it allows, in the vast majority of cases, to provide justification for the actions they took if they were performing their duties within policy and procedures. It allows managers to make an informed decision about the behavior of the officers, and then allows that manager to be able to basically to defend that action to the public. So cameras, the reality is they're here. Uh, everybody's brother's got a smartphone, and every cop eventually is going to have a body camera. Uh, what people are looking for from policing as part of the winning back of the trust we talked mm -hmm. about is transparency. And how much more transparent can you be than having a video of what happened? Sure. And, and that's sort of the factual rendition of what we do in policing. And you made a really interesting and, and fascinating comment about social media, that we don't use it enough in, in law enforcement, that we let others tell the story for us. And if we don't fill the void, they're going to fill it for us, exactly. the critics. In the NYPD, when I was there, I really uh, championed creating in that department Twitter, Facebook, uh, you name it, and we were doing it in the NYPD. And in an average month, we were reaching millions of people in terms of the hits that we were getting. So it provided the opportunity to tell our story. Some people didn't want to hear it. Some people criticized it. But a lot of people liked the idea of we were trying to inform them about what we were doing. Yeah. Well, thanks for your time. Last thing, in the kindest terms, you're a war horse in policing. You talked about George Kelly, and we know about James Q. Wilson. Uh, what's your message in your book, The Profession? The message in the book is about the essentiality of the profession to our democracy. You cannot have democracy without law enforcement, without policing that is effective, policing that is trusted, policing that is constantly reforming, constantly uh, evolving. And so the book is a history of policing over the last 50 years, and I try to make the point how much we have reformed, how much we have changed. It's kind of a pushback against so much of the negativism directed at the police and the demand for more reform. It's not the police are resistant to reform. What we argue against is trying to do too much too soon, that the idea is to also do it in partnership. Better to do it with each other rather than do it to each other. That's great. Terrific. Thank you so okay. much, Chief. appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. And we're back with Policing Matters, and I'm your host, Jim Dudley. And today, 
I'm talking with Ben Salem Township Police Department Director Fred Heron, and I heard a presentation about the Thermo Fisher Scientific uh, Rapid DNA, and you're using it in your township. Tell us about it. We are. We're using uh, DNA every day. I know it rhymes, but uh, it works. And uh, you know, we we went live with Rapid back in 2017, working with Thermo Fisher. Um, and really, you know, like a lot of police departments around the country, um, we are just like everyone else. We're not faced with the homicides and the whodunit sexual assaults. My problem, like a lot of PDs across this great nation, is property crime. Burglaries, thefts, thefts from auto, theft of auto, uh, other crimes, drugs continues to be a big problem. And we're utilizing DNA for those crimes. We utilize them for all the crimes, but specifically property crime. And when you're getting DNA results now in 90 minutes, uh, that's right, 90 minutes. I, I don't think people can really grasp how quick that's happening. And what you're doing is you're stopping crime in its tracks. You're taking the word serial out of crime. Serial robber, serial burglar, serial car thief guy or gal, whatever it is, you're taking that word out of the equation. And it works that simple, that quick. And utilizing the rapid ID instrument, in the police department, 24 hours, seven days a week. I have all my detectives and my supervisors and trained in its utilization. Uh, we're able to process an individual for, let's say, loitering or prowling at nighttime, being in someone's driveway. Someone calls the police at 3 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday in February. Um, probably that person's not going to jail. Probably that's all they did at that specific moment was just be in someone's driveway, going through their car for loose change. For what? To buy drugs. Sure. But now we take them in custody for that crime. We get a consensual buckle swab, and they, about 95% of the people give us their DNA. That's another whole theory I have on why they do that. <laughs> and then we run them through the rapid ID. It uploads into our database. And what do you know? This guy or gal, they also uh, have DNA in the database from three other burglaries. Now you get that criminal off the street immediately, where you would have never have put that, those crimes together this instrument, this science, this company does that. Um, it's doing some amazing work. We've seen a 42% reduction in burglaries. We're seeing huge decreases in property crime. We're seeing decreases in forcible rape. We're seeing a 55% decrease in that. Because as we've heard through this conference, and as we know, anybody that's been in law enforcement more than 10 minutes knows that when you stop the little crimes, You'll also stop the big crimes. This is nothing new. Now we have technology that actually does it. We know what to do. We know how to do it. Now, with the help of Thermo Fisher, they have put the instrument, the science, given us the ability in law enforcement to actually do it. And it's working. It's working in Pennsylvania. It's working in Bucks County. Um, and it's just amazing, the results. So I'll go you one better. In where I'm from in California, we have district attorneys who will not proceed with a case unless there's a DNA link. So officer chases someone down the street. They toss a gun. Officer saw him toss the gun. But the DA requires the DNA to match the suspect to the gun. Are you seeing that happen where you're at? So we utilize it. It's just another tool in our toolbox. Many tools we have in the, in the criminal justice system. This is just an investigative tool. Could we use it? as a gotcha moment if we need to. But what we find is that when we get a DNA hit on someone and we bring them in and we interview them, 
they wind up admitting to the crime because the bad guys know DNA is pretty irrefutable. And they know when we said, listen, it's you and one quadrillionth of a possibility, uh, you know, that it's, it could be somebody else. It, it, that's a great number. And it's him okay. or her. So we're seeing some amazing results. We don't need to have the I gotcha moment mm -hmm. because we're still combining new technology with old-fashioned policing. And together, it's kind of like chocolate and peanut butter. You know, it's, it's, it makes Reese's peanut butter cup. So it's a beautiful thing that comes together. And I'm not a big peanut butter person anyway, but it's <laughs> still a beautiful great. thing that comes together, so they tell me. And we're seeing some, some crazy, crazy results. So if a prosecutor wants to use it as their sole thing, that works. Sure. But it's not necessary. It's not necessary to do that because you're combining new technology with an amazing company with old-fashioned police work. The other thing this does, especially in policing in 2021, is that a lot of people across this country want police less hands-on with people. Hmm. This does that. This has the science doing that work, has the science doing that investigatory work for you where you're not banging down the doors and, you know, hitting the streets. You're getting DNA swaps from people. You are processing crime scenes uh, religiously. Make sure that you, you can't do it half, half, you know, some now, some later. Um, you process that crime scene religiously and you have a DNA in this database. And when you put somebody through the rap machine, it says that this subject was at that crime scene. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. So what kind of uh, training is necessary? Uh, how big? Run us through a crime. Catch a suspected burglar. Take the swab. He volunteers the swab. Does somebody have to be specially trained to put this into the machine? How's no, it work? we just actually, our district attorney allowed us, we have uh, civilians that process prisoners. So just recently he was okay with now the civilians. I guess he was worried about their testimony in court, but it's not an issue. Okay. Um, so you're talking about like a two-hour training that we do in-house. Uh, it's just, it's not that, this is not, DNA is rocket science, but the utilization from a law enforcement capacity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is not rocket science. It's something very easily uh, utilized. Taking swabs from an individual is very simple. For us, we let the person swab their own mouth so there's no confusion. Um, there's no suppression issue. We, we make them sign a sheet. We read the consent form uh, to them. We let them read it. We let them sign it. And we let them swab their own mouth. So there's four things in place that no one can say that we forced this. Sure. Um, and we've been upheld on suppression issues. Uh, nice. We've only, we had a couple suppression cases and when I mean a couple, probably two or less hmm. when we first started, and they've both been upheld. Uh, so it's not been an issue. And now it's just a, it's just another, it's just part of our routine daily business. So you see your your burglaries going down forty two percent two percent. Do you see your arrest conviction rate go up because of the DNA? Um, the, the conviction rate's always been high. Um, so I don't. We're getting a lot of guilty pleas. Now, most of these folks are pleading guilty. We have about a 95% uh, rate of people giving us their DNA. Um, we're getting about in the 90s, high 90s, of actually getting DNA from crime scenes. Mm -hmm. So we train the officers, we watch, we retrain, retrain. And we're not talking about an eight-hour block of training. You've got to spend money to send your officer out. You're talking about 15-minute roll call training. We yeah. have made our own homegrown videos for training. It's not that difficult to process a crime scene. It's easier to process for DNA than it would be for fingerprints. But we never give up any other tools. DNA, yeah. we're not giving up fingerprints for DNA. It's a supplement. It's just another tool. Yeah. You've heard me say it over and over again. It's an investigative tool. This is another item in our toolbox to fight crime. Uh, 
and let the let the science work for us. Let the science work, and in this case, the science is actually working, and it's matching person A to crime scene B. And next thing you know, you've stopped crime in its pass in 90 minutes. Nice. Okay, well, thanks for taking the time, and I hope you have continued success, and uh, stay safe. Well, it's Jim Dudley back with Policing Matters, and I'm going through the exhibition hall, and I spotted Survive First. It is a foundation that is designed to help first responders with mental illness issues. Uh, it's available for all public safety personnel, uh, law, fire, EMS, dispatch, and corrections. And it's a great support group uh, founded by Doug Monda. He was a narcotics agent with the COCO PD. And, uh, and Doug has a story to tell and uh, can tell, tell us more about the foundation. Uh, how it started, just like uh, um, most law enforcement officers today, I, I started uh, as a young police officer um, came into the business thinking that I had all the tools that I needed um, to be a, a good police officer. Um, I come from a professional athlete background, so I was a soccer player and a triathlete and runner, and I've done all these uh, accomplishments in, in my life, you know, Ironman, triathlon, Alcatraz, as you know, uh, playing soccer. and I always had this discipline to, to achieve the goals that I needed to. And I came into law enforcement with that attitude, and, and I was successful in law enforcement. I made the SWAT team in my first year. I was a sniper. Um, I'm a former Blackwater sniper. Um, I did all these great things, and everything was going well. And I was excelling still as an athlete. I was uh, training for the world championships for Ironman. And then things started to change in the career. Obviously, I was getting older. Um, I started to... Uh, um, incur a tremendous amount of trauma from uh, being at Hurricane Katrina in Louisiana to, you know, like every other cop, shootings, um, you know, the Accumulated death, trauma. Right, accumulated trauma. And then um, I started to change, and my attitude changed, and my personal life changed. And, you know, I was always known as a very outgoing, friendly guy. I was a little surfer from Cocoa Beach, you know, so everything was always real cool yeah, and, yeah. you know, easygoing. And things changed over time and, you know, it negatively affected my family and my relationships and the way I thought about things. And I wasn't aware of it. And I was so busy at work doing my job and, and like most cops do. And then all of a sudden one day I got uh, hurt really bad at work. I was hit by an 11-year-old kid who stole a car, um, oh boy. plowed me into an oak tree and... Um, severely damaged my back and my head. I sustained a traumatic brain injury. Um, I ruptured and, and fractured uh, things in my back. And um, it uh, escalated from there. You know, the injuries got worse. I was still trying to train for the world championships, dealing with work comp and, the, you know, that type sure, of stuff. Yeah. And I found myself for the first time in my life uh, sitting on a couch um, by myself. You know, I... my. Um, in this long story, it was about the time that my my long you know, my marriage was ending. Um, like most cops, you know, I, my, it, it affected my family and my marriage. I found myself by myself, and I slowly slipped in, or I would say even rapidly slipped into uh, depression. 
I was suffering from PTSD, which I was unaware of at the time. I'm a little bit older school cop, so we didn't sure. talk about it. Suppressing, sure. Right. And um, the depression got worse, and I thought to help this type of stuff was, you know, to start drinking alcohol for my physical pain and my mental pain, because I'm a drug agent, so I wasn't going to, you know, use pills for pain. And, sure. And uh, it got worse and worse, and it got to a point where it was uncontrollable, and I wasn't educated or aware in it, and ultimately led to a failed suicide attempt where I pulled my gun out and pulled the trigger. And uh, fortunately for me, you know, it didn't work, and I'm still here to tell the story, and obviously life's much better now than it was yeah. back then. Well, that's great. That must yeah. have been a sign. You must have felt like that was a sign. It was a very clear sign. You know, it uh, it, it was like a slap in the face from God saying, tighten up. So yeah. you, know, you got to do this. Really and, fortunate. Uh, very fortunate. And um, But it wasn't the end. Um, I didn't get the proper care for that incident. Mm -hmm. Um, the current administration at my work wasn't uh, experienced, didn't have the training, right. and had the old school mentality. Sure. And uh, they put me just right back to work and right back in the, into the game. And uh, eventually, you know, uh, through injuries and stuff, and it got worse. It got, uh, it got severely worse. And um, it, there was a second attempt uh, that was, by the grace of God, was foiled by my SWAT teammates, and they knew something was wrong, wow. and uh, wow. they were able to uh, to intervene and to get me help, and uh, they did. And uh, my chief, who was the chief three days, um, when he found out about this, he was like, hey, we need to fix our guys, and we need to fix him, and yeah. you know, he, he'll be here today at the thing, and he um he said, hey, this is one of our guys. We don't turn our back on our right, man. So right. we're going to fix him and get him help and get him back on there. And so I went away for a little while. It got physically better again, and I got mentally healthy. I went to a first responder program okay. and uh, came back to work. And when I came back to work, um, I realized, so I had some education at this point in mental health, and I realized how broken the system was. Mm. And um, so what I did when I came back, um, so many people, uh, it opened a door because they were like, how does a, uh, I was a leader of a SWAT team, how does a guy like this do what he did and come back to work? Sure. And so my phone started ringing. And then officers would come up to me and go, hey, I need some advice. I'm mm. struggling. You know, wow. do you, are you on medication? It, crazy question, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> And uh, that's kind of what brought me into this. And I noticed the, the broken system. And and I'm a cop's cop. I sure. love my cops and, and other agencies. And I wanted to change something. I, I felt like, man, this is really unfair. Yeah. Um, we don't have, you know, we, we, we literally kill ourselves daily to protect people mm. and save people we don't even know. Right. What are we doing for right, ourselves? Right. So fortunately for me, I had some pretty big friends in the FBI and A and, and international chiefs, and uh, I called them up and I said, hey, I want to do something to make an impact. And uh, they all jumped on board, and uh, they we, we just decided to develop the Survive First Foundation. And the, the program was set up to take the no out of getting help. Right. What we learned was cops don't get help because they can't afford it. Mm. More than what the people use the term stigma. Right. We can fix the stigma and we can get past that. But it was the, the most thing I learned was the, the co-pays and the money. Yeah. And then also the confidentiality, the fear of losing their job. Right. 
And then third, the training, the lack of training. Mm-hmm. So I went to them and said, I want to be able to tell any cop that wants it. And I say cop because I'm a cop, but any sure. first responder right, and right. their family yeah. that needs help, we need to be able to say we can give you that help. Yeah. And then also um, for chiefs. Um, mental health is not on the checklist, uh, high on the checklist. Mm. You know, obviously we have DT and driving and all sure. those things. So by the time a chief gets through his budget, the mental health training is at the bottom of the list. Yeah. So I wanted to be able to say, hey, we'll give, we can provide you free education and training for your department. Mm. And those were the three things that were important at the time. And that's what we've done. And, uh, you know, here we are today. We're, you know, we're obviously, you know, nationally recognized and we're able to provide these resources to officers and their families. Yeah. And, uh, so that's kind of the short version of how this all transpired. Well, you know, I'm looking at your booth and I do see people stopping and yeah. taking the literature. Uh, some of your literature talks about 85% of first responders report some type of mental health symptom. And, you, I mean, we're talking about the stigma, smashing the stigma, right? right? Do you really see that improving? Have you seen it? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do see that improving. Obviously, um, we're talking about it. Right, and right. Uh, here we are. The, the, the program today is about mental health. Um, you know, the president of the FBINA, he's part of our organization. Oh, that's you know, uh, all throughout these uh, incredible organizations, they're, they're, they're talking about it. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And there's other nonprofits and other organizations that focus on just smashing the stigma, sure. you know, opposite of what we do, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is great. So, well, I think it's great that we hit the problem at all angles as Absolutely. many as we can and and you are really taking care of uh, maybe officers from a smaller agency that d- doesn't have the financial support or um, or the larger agencies that just leave it to their own healthcare systems Correct. their individual health care systems so it's great that you provide the service it's it's need-based so it's almost like a sliding scale I guess or a um, financial um, you've got to show uh, the need. Yeah, we uh, obviously because you know just like everything else in this world, there's people that you know would attempt to you know maybe uh, take advantage of the system. But uh, we have a a program or what's an application process and um, that the people go through on we fully online, confidentially online, nice. and uh, it also helps you know because a lot of in, uh, first responders are scared to use EAP programs. Sure, They're right. scared to notify the work. Right. So if they do that with us, we are able to set that up for them to assist them and give them that relief. Keep uh, the confidentiality. That confidentiality you know, it's great. Uh, yeah, that's important to us and to them. Yeah, and and I love the idea that you have education, you've got the financial aid, and that you're willing to reach out to other first responders, not just law enforcement, but uh, dispatch and corrections and EMS as well. So it's good on you, and Thank I'm you. glad you're here. Thank you, I'm honored. And uh, I'm glad uh, you know that you saw me beyond yourself and started the foundation for the greater good. So thanks Thank for you. being on the show. Absolutely, I'm honored. Thanks we for having me. Appreciate it, Doug. Absolutely. All right, and to our listeners, uh, tell us what you think. Uh, there are some really good programs out there like Doug's uh, Survive First. You can check it out on the net. We will post a link on the show notes, and it's available. Uh, you can make the call. Drop us an email, policingmatters at police1.com, policingmatters at police1.com. If you're on Apple listening to the podcast, rate us, 
give us five stars for the review. We appreciate your feedback. All right, take good care. Be safe. I'm Jim Dudley.